Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with him. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. One day some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Jesus responded, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined, and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. Thanks, guys, for letting us be a part of your May Mission Month. tried to build that uh, musical segue into giving me time to walk into the stage, but I guess it uh, wasn't appreciated. That's all right. <laughs> uh, well, welcome. Uh, what a privilege uh, it is to be gathered and to open God's Word together this morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan. If we didn't have the chance to meet, I'd love to catch you after the service. Uh, welcome to Windsor District Baptist Church. Uh, we are, as Joanna said, a family of faith who is in pursuit of Christ because Christ gives us freedom. Uh, we have been working our way through the gospel of Luke. Uh, the word gospel just means good news. Uh, God has given us good news, and Luke is one of four authors in the New Testament who have given us an up-close and personal view of the life and ministry of Jesus. And this gospel in particular is meant to highlight the way of salvation. It's meant to show us what salvation is, to show us how we get on board that highway, how we partake of that. Um, my mic's feeling a bit hot, so I'm going to ask if you don't mind, just pull that back a little bit. Thanks. You don't want to hear all my clicking and breathing. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're learning about the way of salvation. And this morning as we come, we're going to see that uh, the way of salvation is... Actually, I'm going to get you guys to reset the slides as well. I'm going to need you to pop off that and reset that. So I'm going to pray while they do that, and then we're going to start this afresh. 
<laughs> now that we've had every possible distraction uh, out of the way. So if you could just log off, resync the slides, we'll be good to go. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you this morning and we give thanks for your Holy Spirit who Christ has poured out. And we pray that you would encourage us from your word today. Thank you, Lord, for the, the hearts and minds that are gathered here this morning to hear from you. And we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, you know our hurried schedules. You know the burdens that we brought in here today. You know the things that are weighing on us. You know the problems that we can't solve. You know the afflictions that we bear. And so, Lord, would you ease our burden today, for we are helpless without you. So, God, thank you. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that your spirit enlivens your word that we would know you better. We pray this happens in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to Luke chapter 5, and we have another instance of Jesus calling somebody into his fellowship, calling him into his band, if you will, so, so to speak. Uh, and here we see that the way of salvation is a way of invitation. It's an invitation into grace. And the question that, that really is teased out through all of this is how well do we really understand Jesus and his mission? Has someone, someone ever given you a gift and you say, oh, thank you for that gift, but I'm not really sure why you gave it to me. I sense that for a lot of people in the church, we can feel that way about this great salvation that Christ has given us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins. I know that I need this. I know that this is important, but I'm not entirely sure why you gave it to me. Uh, Father's Day is not too far away, uh, and Father's Day is sort of the classic day. As a dad, you, you, you get gifts from your kids, and you say, wow, I didn't know I needed this multi-tool. And I'll put it with a collection of other multi-tools that I have so that should I find myself one day in a situation where I can only carry one thing in my pocket, I will have a multi-tool to solve five to six different problems. We kind of feel that way a little bit about the salvation that Jesus gives. It's like, okay, great. I know this is going to come in handy, but if I don't really understand why it was given to me, then it's very easy for it to just sort of sit in a drawer as we come to Luke chapter 5, uh, the main idea that we're going to see if we're trying to understand Jesus in this way of salvation is that salvation is for sinners. Salvation is for sinners. And by this, you need to understand that Jesus is inviting sinners to share in his grace. That's why he came, to invite sinners to share in his grace, in the grace and love of God for them. Now, as we come to Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39, Luke wants us to notice three, th wants us to notice three things, three things here about this encounter between Luke, I mean, excuse me, between Jesus and Levi and the subsequent banquet that follows, three things that help us to understand the mission of Jesus. These three things are, these three things are quite simply, who is invited, number one, who is invited, Who's invited to share in this salvation? Number two, why are they invited? And number three, why are they celebrating? <laughs> Who is invited? Why are they invited? And why are they celebrating? 
Follow with me. Who is invited? Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 29. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. This seems like a very straightforward story, easy enough. Levi shows, Jesus walks out, he sees Levi. He is sitting at a tax booth. Now tax collectors in that day were an unsavory sort of people. You didn't want to be known as a friend of a tax collector. And it's not because people don't like to pay tax. Like, I don't know anyone who's ever loved to pay tax. But to be a tax collector in this society, to be a Jewish tax collector for the Roman Empire, it said a few things about you. First of all, it said that you'd sort of sold out your own people. You'd been kind of conscripted to work for the oppressors. Secondly, they were notorious for being dishonest because the way Rome incentivized their tax collectors was, you can charge whatever you want as long as we get our cut. And so they were known for ripping people off. So it was a way to make a living. You could become quite lucrative if you could bear the disdain and the stigma of it. I, I've never met a hitman before. I'm sure you could make a good living out of it. I'm sure people would pay a lot of money for you to be able to knock other people off, right, to murder them. Uh, I don't know any hitmen personally, but I bet you if I said, hey, I'm hanging out with some hitmen this afternoon. Do you want to come over to my house? You'd be like, nah, thanks, but no thanks. As one commentator put it, uh, tax collector is sort of like a, a pimp, right? Someone who, who is enabling a system of dishonesty and making quite a profit off of it. And so, yeah, it is a way of life. <laughs> but it's not really a way of life that most sort of noble uh, people, respectable people would aspire to. But Jesus sees Levi, and he says to him, follow me. Very interesting. Now, there is a word that is commonly used when you see something in the New Testament, like, oh, look, there's a bird, or oh, look, you know, there's, there's a big catch of fish. But the word see here, as one commentator has pointed out, is to look intently at. And so the idea here is that Jesus in seeing Levi at his toll booth, his tax booth, if you will, he doesn't just look at the man, but he sees the man, almost looking through the man. What a wonderful picture of Jesus' invitation. Have you ever got the sense that God was just looking at you up close and personal? And he's just staring at you. And he's saying into your soul, and he's saying, I, I know you. I know where you've been. I know who you are. I know everything about you. It can be a bit confronting. But he's there and he's seeing you. Jesus sees Levi and he gives him a simple command, follow me. It's, it, it's an invitation. And in Luke's gospel, the right response to the call of Jesus is to pull up stakes and move, to go. 
to leave everything behind. Now, this is now the fourth of what will become 12 disciples that Jesus has called. We don't get the story of Jesus calling all of the disciples. We've just gotten these four. The first happened a few weeks ago when we looked at Peter and the miraculous catch of fish. Peter, James, and John, they're fishermen, and Jesus calls them to leave their nets and to follow him. Well, here in this situation, Levi leaves everything and follows Jesus. Now, if this Jesus thing didn't work out for Peter and James and John, there's always more fish in the sea, right? They can always go back to fishing. But for Levi to give up his job as a tax collector, he's not getting that job back. You don't just abandon your post in the Roman Empire, lucrative as it was, and go and leave. And this wasn't some sort of menial job. This wasn't a job that nobody wanted to do. This was putting yourself in a position of power. And Levi was quite likely the wealthiest of all the disciples. In fact, after being called by Jesus, he goes and throws a big party. So he's pretty well off. And here he is, through his actions, a silent testimony to us all the way out here in the Hawkesbury, where land values are high, where high-paying jobs are at a premium, where the security of your family, where your social mobility is the currency in which we live. It's the water in which we swim. And here this man's act to say, you know, Jesus has called me to follow him, and, and, and he pulls up stakes. Don't read this without looking at what Levi gave up. Jesus invites a known sinner to follow him, and so in verse 29, Levi holds a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Can I just say how refreshingly beautiful this picture is? When Jesus calls you, that is something to celebrate. And Levi gets it. This is an occasion of joy. I was having a discussion with a friend this week over dinner. We are talking about sort of the, the, the culture in which we live and the church's space in that culture today. And I thought, you know, how often in the church somebody comes to faith and we, we say, oh, I'm glad you're excited right now, but, but just wait. Just wait. It's going to get hard. And, and as brothers and sisters, we, we almost dampen down, we, we, we put down the enthusiasm, the enthusiasm of our younger, newer believers who are walking in the joy of the Lord, who like Levi have heard Christ and seen this Jesus is something different. He is so different that Levi decides, I got to tell my friends about him and the best way to do it is to throw a party. I'm going to throw a party. Jesus is the guest of honor. Come to my house. You got to meet this guy. You can hear the frozen chosen in the back saying, oh, well, you know, we'll see. We'll see how he, see if he wants to throw any parties, you know, 10 years from now. When, you know, he's trying to battle that addiction and, you know, the, Leadership in the church don't support the decision that, you know, he wants to go. We'll, we'll see how happy he is in the Lord then. You know, I'm going to reserve my judgment and enthusiasm. Let's see how long this guy lasts. 
before we come around him. This is so different. And can I say this is so healthy? One of the things that troubles me most as a pastor in this area is the lack of hospitality that I see. The lack of hospitality that I see among Christians for each other, but also for their non-Christian neighbors. And now, this is not universal in every sense. And I'm not trying to have a go at any particular individual or anyone. I'm not saying anything about your practices. I'm just saying from my own observations and what I see, there seems to be a lack of initiative to say, this Jesus that has called me into his fellowship, he's really something. No, I'm happy to tell people, look, I go to church. Yep, I'm a Christian. I, I go to church. If you want to know about my Christianity, you can find me in the same place, generally speaking, two out of four weeks a month. And Sunday morning from 9 to 10 a.m., that's where you'll find me. That's where you'll find my Jesus. When in reality, Levi says, no, no, no. There's something you got to see here. And I wonder if the reason that we are so hesitant to invite people into our lives and into our homes is because we think they're just going to see the same thing they see in their homes and in their lives. Am I right? You'll know, you won't understand this banquet until you realize that Levi has encountered in Jesus something he's never seen before. And he is so captivated, he is so liberated by this Christ that everything behind just sort of seems to fade away. And he's ready to walk forward with Jesus. And that is the controlling reality of his life. Luke wants you to see who Jesus invites. He invites known Sinners, known sinners. Paul would write to Timothy, he would say, this is a trustworthy saying. Put this in your back pocket. Write this on your bookmark and give it to the cards and your, put it, write it on the cards that you pass around in your care groups. This is a trustworthy saying. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. He invites known sinners into discipleship. This is good news because it means that if he can invite sinners like that, then that means I'm welcome too because I'm a known sinner. This is who is invited. Now, why are they invited? Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law begin to articulate some of their discomfort with Jesus, some of their resistance with Jesus. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Literally, the word is grumbled. Luke only uses this word twice in Luke and Acts. He, Luke, and Luke is one of the most prolific authors of the New Testament. He only uses this word twice. They grumbled, and it's the same word that is used of the Israelites as they're traveling through the wilderness when they're complaining to Moses, they're saying, why did you bring us out of Egypt? You know, were there not enough graves over there, Moses? You needed to put a cemetery in the wilderness, that's why you brought us out. And they grumbled and moaned and whined. Here the Pharisees are grumbling, they're, they're obstinate to Jesus, and this is their complaint. 
the teachers of the law complained to his disciples. Gotta love this. They never go to the source. They go to the they go to the underlings, right? Why do you uh, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Do you know who you're eating with? Do you know who you're engaging with? Do you realize that person that you've shared a meal with? Now, the idea was in this Pharisee movement, it was a reform movement. They were trying to bring people back to God, and their understanding of the way that they were going to do that was to take the purity of the temple and to bring it into their everyday lives, particularly the home. And so the home was a place of purity, and to invite people who were known to be defiled, like tax collectors and sinners, into your home was to bring defilement upon yourself. And so it was a totally foreign idea to them. They, they viewed the people that Jesus and the disciples were sitting with and sharing a meal with as people who would contaminate them, as people who would inhibit them from being right with God or just with God. Notice the disciples don't answer. Jesus answers instead, and he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is fascinating, the way Jesus alternates between spiritual and physical metaphors to describe our condition. Jesus has been healing. He healed a paralytic. He healed a leper. This text, there's no healing. Yet Jesus is very keen to, see, to use the description, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners, behind his statement that he is tending to the sick. Jesus sees in this banquet table him applying medicinal care. Now this only makes sense if you see it from Jesus' perspective that sin is an affliction that every human being bears. You see, sin is not simply, oh, I got caught, I did the wrong thing. Yes, sins are acts and thoughts, but sin also has a power, and it is a debilitating power that brings people suffering. And Jesus postures himself as the great physician, the physician who comes and heals. That's why they're invited let me tell you what this means. Jesus isn't hanging out with the tax collectors because he's like, well, you know, look, you know, they just have a rough go in society. You know, they have a rough go. Nobody likes them, and someone really needs to be their champion. And so I'm going to get alongside the tax collectors, and I'm just going to support and encourage them because, you know, everyone needs someone in their corner, even the tax collectors. We can read it that way. We, we can read it as Jesus is just the, the tender-hearted guy who doesn't want to see anybody put down. And, and he just he's there to help and encourage. And that's why he's doing this. Can I suggest to you that is a very shallow understanding. The deeper reality that Jesus understands is that they are suffering. They are sick. You don't go to the cancer ward and say, you know, I just feel like you don't get a fair shake in society, cancer patients. 
I just feel like, you know, you're, you're marginalized. And so, you know, I'm going to make up some posters and I'm going to say, yay for you guys. I'd say, great, but actually the problem I have is this cancer that's destroying my body. The problem that every human being has is the sin that has separated us from God and the sin that is rotting us from the inside out. Jesus understands that and he is there to heal them, to save them. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. There's irony in that statement. Jesus is not saying that, well, there's some people who are already righteous and there's some people who are sinners. And, you know, the righteous, you're fine. (laughs) Which is ironically what the Pharisees were probably thinking. What Jesus is doing, he's, he's exposing their hypocrisy. Sort of like what he would say in John's gospel to the Pharisees. He would say, you are blind because you claim you, you see. There's a woman named uh, Rosaria Butterfield who has written a book called Openness Unhindered, among a few other books. Uh, you may know of her. She, uh, she was a, a very well-positioned uh, professor in academia. Uh, she was a lesbian. She was called to Christ, called into repentance, She changed her life, Christ changed her life, and things really got turned around. And in this book, Openness Unhindered, she describes an initiative that she and her husband took. They decided that once a week they were going to walk around their neighborhood and they were going to invite people to come out of their houses and tell them things they'd like them to pray for. So she sent an email to as many neighbors as she knew Christians, non-Christians, if you're Christians, you're welcome to join me. If you're non-Christians, don't, don't feel like you have to. But we would love to pray for you. And she would just walk for a mile, 1.6 kilometers for those of you who don't know the conversion. She'd walk a mile around the, her neighborhood and they would stop and they would pray as they go. They'd just pray out loud. They'd just gather. And she did this week after week after week. She writes in this book, she says, why do this? Why not just have the Christian neighbors over for a barbecue or football or board games? Why not just invite the people we know are Christians to join us in our living rooms and pray with the doors closed? Why not exclusively surround ourselves with people who are just like us? That's a very relevant question. She says this, we commit ourselves to praying with and for our neighbors every Thursday night in order to remember. We remember what it was like before the Holy Spirit chiseled our stony hearts soft. We remember what it was like before the blood of Jesus pumped our hearts whole. We remember the night terrors and the mid-morning anxiety attacks the unraveled good intentions of daily inventing ourselves and snowballing rules through which we hoped we could function. Sound familiar? We remember what it was like to crack under the weight of this and the loneliness of having no place to go but drugs, alcohol, sex, or lies. We remember our own predatory sin and its legacy and how for nothing that we could do or offer, God reached down and brought us to himself. We remember the throne of grace rising from the rubble. We remember that repentance is the threshold to God, and we want to invite others to come.
sí. She goes on to talk about how before they started praying and walking together, they heard rumors of people with needs, but when they actually went and invited, they knew firsthand. She would go on to write in this book, and I, I can't commend this particular portion uh, highly enough. She said how when you stand with the suffering, there's no boundaries. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I'm standing with the suffering. I, I, I'm sitting here having table fellowship. To eat with somebody was a very intimate act in that society. I would suggest it still can be for us. Because in the course of, of eating and consumption, you are relating and you're sharing life and you're dialoguing and you're, you, you are embracing your creatureliness together. And Jesus having this fellowship with these sinners is inviting them in. He is standing with the suffering, and that's what's important. So who's invited? Known sinners. Why are they invited? Because Jesus came for them. He came to heal them. Not just of physical maladies, but of the condition that separates them from God and brings them into suffering. And so lastly, why are they celebrating? This is, the, this is really the question that's on the lips of the Pharisees. Verse 33, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. So it's a question of practice. Now, prayer, which they initially raised, drops out of the discussion. That's because I think Jesus and his disciples regularly did pray. Jesus doesn't quibble about the question of whether or not they pray. But he's trying to explain to them why they don't fast. And he gives them this analogy. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. Jesus, why are you going on feasting? We are zealous for God, and we express our zeal for God by fasting Mondays and Thursdays. This is what the Pharisees did. Twice a week they would fast. Mondays and Thursdays they'd fast. Jesus, why are you sitting here being a glutton, having a great time, enjoying yourself? Why are your disciples doing this? The implication is, Jesus, if you are as righteous as you purport yourself to be, then what's with all this exuberance? What's with this celebrating? And Jesus uses an image that was common in that day of the greatest celebration that you might have in your life, which is your wedding day. And on a wedding day, the party would last for seven days. As a guest, you wouldn't be asked to offer anything. You didn't need to bring anything but yourself. And there would be enough food to have a banquet and to feast for the whole week. So Jesus says, not only is this a time of celebrating through this idea, but he's also echoing from the Old Testament the picture of God coming to his people, which is not one that 
was necessarily always associated with the Messiah, but nevertheless, it's in Scripture. The idea that, that God's people, Israel, have been wayward, but that God would come again and join them. This picture of God as the groom and his people, Israel, the bride. So Jesus makes an astounding statement here, but he, or he reasons from a very realistic scenario. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? And you may say, okay, what do you mean by fasting here? By fasting, we mean the act of depriving yourself, typically of food or drink, depriving yourself of physical needs. The idea behind fasting is to express some discontent with the present reality. So you fast when the present reality is not, is not suitable and you're longing for more. So it could be there's been a national tragedy. And so to, to, show, to show collectively the mourning that we're all experiencing and to, to reflect our discontent with the present moment and the tragedy, we, will, we fast corporately. It could also be fasting because you're seeking the intervention of God. You're, you're saying, God, my hope is in you in the future and in you acting and doing something later, but right now I don't see it and it's not here and so I'm going to fast. I'm going to train my heart and my body to look to you, to look to the future. Into that context, Jesus brings unassailable logic. Who could hope for anything better than God to visit his people? It doesn't get any better than this. Why would you fast? I had a good conversation recently with this, about this with, with someone. And they said, I'm trying to get my head around this, 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 this whole passage. I'm trying, I'm trying to understand this. And I said to him, I said, look, imagine you go away on a business trip. And you're really missing your beloved. You, you're, you're, you're missing your wife. It's, you know... It's week three, you've been away, and, and you decide after a long, day's, long day work, you go home, you could flick on the television, you could raid the mini bar and pull out all the snacks and, and just go to town and charge it to your corporate expense account. But instead, you say, you know, I'm just going to sit and I'm just going to have a quiet moment. And I'm just going to reflect on my beloved and what she means to me. And you might flick, pull out your phone and look at some old photos. You know, the intern might come by your room and say, knock, knock, hey, we're going down to the bar. Do you want to come? And you say, no, 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 I, I don't think I want to come. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just appreciating my beloved and the fact that I can't be with them right now. You're depriving yourself. And then I want you to imagine how ludicrous it would be if your wife had came and surprised you on the business trip. And there's a knock at the door. And she says, Honey, guess what? You'll never believe it. I'm here. You didn't expect me to come right now, but I'm here. I've arrived. And you said, hold on, hold on. No, 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 please, just, just wait out there. I, I'm sitting here thinking about how much I miss you. You say, open the door, you idiot. <laughs> Get up. Welcome her in. Crack open the minibar, right? <laughs> Celebrate. She's here. That's the picture. Jesus is saying all your fasting and all your pining and all your longing for God to act, guess what? He's acting right now because I'm here. 
And so why would you expect these people who've been estranged from God for so long but have been finally brought back into connection and back into relationship with God, why would you expect them to go about mourning right now and depriving and deploring the current state of their circumstance when God is in their midst? They're being freed of their sins. They're being accepted and loved. Jesus says it's ludicrous. And then he goes on to comment on this through t- some parables. And I don't have time to unpack all of these. But the picture in these parables, the parable of the wineskins, the parables of the cloth, is the incompatibility. Jesus will say, he says, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch up an old one. Imagine you go into the cupboard, you pull out those those old jeans that you really liked, and you say, oh, I just noticed there's a hole right in the knee. Honey, you just bought that denim jacket a few weeks ago. I'm going to cut that up, and I'm going to patch up this. You say, no, that's so dumb. With the wineskins, the, the, the incompatibility, Jesus, he's saying, and this is, requires some understanding of fermentation and, and the way wineskins age. But the point is, if you put new wine into old wineskins, you lose both. And what Jesus is saying is, Pharisees, your current understanding of expressing your zeal for God does not fit with the current reality. There's an incompatibility there. What I am doing requires you to think differently. Requires you to adopt a new understanding, change your perspective. Have we changed our perspective? How much do we understand of the mission of Jesus? Jesus clearly came to save sinners. In his ministry, he invited them in. He he was present with them. The Pharisees objected to this because they were so concerned about having to know how to draw the line to make sure they were on the right side of the line. As a church, I want to challenge you to model the gospel. Model the grace of God. You can't do that by yourself. You have to do it in community. If you're modeling something, it requires two things. It requires someone you're looking at to say, am I getting this right? Am I looking at this? And, and if we're going to model the gospel, we need to look at Jesus. We need to look at him. We need to see how he treated people, how he acted with people. We need to try to understand why he does what he does. But the other component of modeling something is you're not just trying to imitate an example, but you're actually replicating something for the benefit of others. And so we model the grace of God not just trying to internally imbibe, take in more of the grace of God, but we're doing it for others so that we put the grace of God on display for one another and for the world and for our neighbors. Who are you inviting into your life?
The Pharisees were not concerned about inviting anybody into their life. They were concerned about keeping people out of their life because in their view, their life was a self-made project. A self-made project whereby they would bring either success or judgment upon themselves. And so to do what Jesus was doing was entirely unthinkable. Why would I ruin this life that I'm crafting by inviting sinners into it? Think of what will happen to my reputation. Think of how they might contaminate me. But Jesus is entirely different. He's, he alone is the one who's restoring sinners. He knows that all that's required for them to be cleansed is to receive his pronouncement of forgiveness. And that if they repent and if they turn and they follow him, that that is actually the true community of insiders. As we model the gospel to one another, we will grow and become strong. We respond to the gospel as we hear it. We respond in faith by believing it, by embracing what it says about who we are. We respond to the gospel, as we saw last week, by putting its principles into practice, by tangibly reorienting our lives. But if we try to do that in a corner, independent of other people, then we're totally undercutting the purpose for which Jesus came, which is to invite people who are suffering, people who are laden with sin. And the beauty of this is you don't have to have a degree to show people Jesus. You don't have to go through Bible college to point people to Christ. You don't have to have read the whole entire Bible. You don't even have to do that. All you have to do is testify and point to what Christ has done for you.